The great Carl Jung once wrote, your vision will become clear only when you look into your heart. Who looks outside dreams, who looks inside awakens. And for me, this wonderful quote from Carl Jung, but the idea of an internal heart and vision can be summed up, I believe, and in how I've gone about my work, with one word, and that is instinct. Instinct guides us in a very unique way. We're not distracted by external forces, nor the sometimes very negative impact of our own internal dialogues. It's just pure, it's elemental, and it comes from somewhere deep inside, which is connected to our true purpose. And it's something I really believe we need to connect with when we start to formulate our vision for how we rebuild personally and on a much bigger scale with our businesses post-COVID. We have to listen to our instinct and we have to do what's right because when we do, amazing things can happen. Take a cassette out of its case and most people just see an empty box. But Sony saw something quite different. Akio Morita transformed Sony into a global brand and often he talked about trusting his instinct. He was dismissed, for instance, when he pushed the Walkman to be developed and marketed. Yes, I loved my Walkman. A tape player that can't record music when you walk. Who'd want that, they all said. (laughs) Well, as it happened, a few hundred million wanted that. Or make that billions if you include all the smartphones that we now can't leave home without. Akio Morita trusted his gut instinct, even in the face of opposition. He had the courage to act willingness to make mistakes and it led him to great places and it's a similar story for many of those who've pushed things forward and greatly impacted how we live today and it's critical that more of us learn how to use this instinct well whether you're running a small business or a large one it can guide you it can the decisions you make and the values you bring to life instinct though is deeply personal it's not something that can be taught It's a skill like any other that requires space to develop and expand. Practice builds confidence, but strengthening your instinct bit by bit can transform it into the most essential tool that you use in business. And so much about bringing the kindness economy to life hinges on our ability to use our instinct, to imagine a better world and then can paint its contours into existence. I'm Mary Portas. Welcome to The Kindness Economy. The Kindness Economy podcast is supported by BT and its small business support scheme. Pete, Pete's on the line. I can see Pete. Hello, Pete from BT. Hi, Mary. I'm looking at you and you don't have any pictures on your wall. It's all white space. Very modern. Why is that? Well, I, this morning I'm hiding up in the loft because I've got uh, four children being homeschooled downstairs. So I've come up here to have a quiet spot to talk to you. <laughs> I try and do that, that homeschooling. I'm sorry. I, I, I've been able to deal with so much, but that is the one thing that nearly made me put my head in the old proverbial oven. But Pete, welcome. Tell me something that BT are getting up to and actually doing something that's benefiting the kindness economy. What have you been doing? Well, we launched our small business support scheme last summer and it has a range of measures in it. Um, but one really interesting thing we saw was that a lot of people are starting 
new businesses um, during the pandemic uh, and changing the way they're working. So to recognise the important role that new startups will play in getting the economy back up and running, we introduced a tech bursary for any new limited company in the UK where we give them six months completely free fibre broadband, mobile and a digital phone line. Um, So if you've started a new business since October 2019, actually, we went back as far as October 2019, you can go and get that um, free period um, and you just go to bt.com forward slash tech bursary. Oh, loving that one, Pete. So listen, small businesses, you can find out more about all of this and the support that's on offer from BT by visiting bt.com forward slash small business support. So coming up today, the great architect Amanda Levite, looking forward to that chat. But before that happens, who's calling moi down the Porter's Pipe today? Hi Mary, it's Paisley, your Deputy MD at Porter's. Hello Paisley, my Deputy MD. I have to tell you, when I chat to Paisley, it makes me laugh every time we do this on Zoom because behind her she has the Virgin Mary. (laughs) And I think that's a little nod to my specialness as well, if I'm honest there with you, Paisley. Yes. Yeah, I'm extremely devout, as you know, Mary. Right, so tell me, what have you been seeing, feeling, hearing, listening to on the kindness economy? What have you seen? Tell us, Pace. Oh, well, there's a bit of a theme to my examples um, because I'm quite interested in how uh, the kindness economy is appearing uh, at scale. So I think we're seeing more and more bigger companies, the really big global companies taking the lead in behaving properly, behaving well. Um, A really good example of that um, is Apple. So they have... Uh, just opened or announced that they will open their first developer academy. They're doing that in Detroit. And a bit of context is that Detroit is a city with a very vibrant black entrepreneur and developer community, has over 50,000 black owned businesses. Um, And the whole thing that Apple are going after is that they want to empower young black entrepreneurs, creators and coders and help them cultivate the skills necessary for jobs in the in the tech economy so it's an example I think of a company really taking diversity seriously finding ways to uh, make it happen in the company from grassroots up and taking responsibility for it beyond just talking about it in the press and at, at kind of culturally appropriate times. Yeah, also Detroit being where cool music happened, man. I mean, lots of stuff there. So there's a wonderful sort of rhythm that goes with that one. Although sometimes I do get really annoyed with Apple because they do make you buy more stuff. They redesign something and everything you have to buy. So we're going to push a little force on them. Yeah, we'll redesign the phone. Then you can't put, you you know, the same plug that you went in before and you can't use the same earphones because they want us to buy more. So whilst we're loving what you're doing, Apple in Detroit, we're also going to be a shout out to... Think about how much stuff you produce and sell to us. But I like that anyway. Any other one pays? Yes. Um, so again, with this kind of theme, doing good at scale and actually really pertinent to this podcast because their founder was one of your guests, Mary. And that is the news that uh, Vestiaire had a massive round of investment from I'm going to say this wrong, I think, Kering. I got this wrong earlier. Well done. Not Kering, yep. (laughs) And Tiger Global Management. Um, And Vestiaire, as Fanny talked about on your podcast, have one 
mission, which is to change the fashion industry. And I think, I know I remember a time when secondhand or vintage was either eye-wateringly expensive kind of collectibles or really musty charity shop, uh, whichever, it was very niche. And really what this is signalling is it's not niche any longer. This idea of reuse, recycle is now properly mainstream and, and done very in a very fashion way. So it doesn't, you're not making any sacrifices. You can still look fabulous, have fun shopping, but you can do it with a really good conscience. Yeah. Hey, listen, Paisley. I mean, you know, like, I feel like we've been in there right at the cutting edge. 12 years been doing this through our living and giving shops and our recycled vintage and making it sexy. Do you reckon Kering might buy us out and put all that money in to save the children? That really would be the kindness economy in action, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. I love those examples and I love seeing your little happy face. Can't wait to see each other when we do get back in the office. All right. So look after yourself. Bye bye, Paisley. Oh, thanks for having me. Our private homes have become anything from a place of refuge to fortresses to God knows what else if you've been in my home during COVID. And at the same time as most of us have disconnected from the public spaces like offices and city centres. It's this radical shift in our relationship to bricks and mortar. But the big question is, how will this play out in the future? History's shown us that health crises can have a profound impact on the buildings and places we create. London's sewerage system, for instance, was built following a cholera outbreak in the 1870s. The clean, antiseptic lines of modernist architecture were born out of the battle against TB in the early 20th century. Architects, therefore, are now at the forefront of imagining our world post-pandemic. And Amanda Levite is among them. Renowned in her field, she has worked on buildings including London's V&A Museum and Lisbon's Museum of Art, Architecture and Technology. Now Amanda is pushing into new territory as she works with scientists at Oxford University on a new eco-friendly material called transparent wood, as well as a prototype nuclear fusion facility for the Canadian clean energy firm General Fusion. For her, there are two relationships at the heart of great architecture. How we interact with each other in the buildings we inhabit and how nature is reflected both internally and externally within that. Amanda has a vision that extends far beyond the walls, ceilings and technicalities of design. So I started by asking her, what does architecture mean to her? For me, we build because we believe in a future. And we build to make ideas a, a reality. And buildings, I think, more than anything, they represent social ideas. And in a sense, they're, they're the kind of the greatest expression of the idea of community. You know, they tell us who we are and maybe who we want to be. Architecture is literally about everything. It's about the building, but it's also what it contains, who it contains, the ideas it contains, the city context that it's in, the culture that it creates, the message it projects to the outside world, whether that's of an institution or of a business or of a 
of a, a social idea for for housing. It's that there's a there's a messaging in in everything, and I just wish it was um, part of the curriculum for kids because there's such a richness when you start to look at architecture. There's so much that you can read into you know, it. I'm listening to you here, and I think I'm kind of you know because I've been in this sort of tangentially in the design world and the creative world. I, that's just the most beautiful expression of it. And I've, I haven't thought about that. I haven't thought about that. What you've talked about there, um, the influence on every part of our lives, we are witnesses to history of it, what you talked about, community. I've always just thought it's how you feel and what you, you know, and I'm, I'm diminishing that, but I didn't ever think it went as deep as that. And it does, doesn't it? It so does. There's so many things I would want to ask you. You know, when, when, and, and I'm going to go off a bit, but, but how did we end up building such cheap crap, Amanda? I mean, is it just, was there more money around? Was there less people? How have we ended up creating some homes and spaces where I know having traveled the country when I've been filming and I turn up to places and it actually affects my soul? And I think, how are people living in this? And why did we end up there? Can you give a little bit of a history on it? I did this with Kate Rayworth on economics. Can you just give us a bit of a history on architecture, on how we live and, and why we ended up sometimes with places are just, I don't know how people have ever signed them off. And I, I think it's a, it's a very big question. And it... Um, I was actually listening this morning to the your your podcast with Kate and I was absolutely fascinated and and you look at you look at kind of volume housing so that, you know I think that's probably what you're referring to and it's often built cheaply without much thought without much soul with a view to making the maximum profit for the developer, not to have maximum impact on the people who live there, with minimum space standards, you know, that it, it's the wrong position to start from. We should be starting from, first of all, you know, understanding who we're building for. And, it, you know, it's not, there isn't a, a, a generic solution Different communities need different buildings, need different approaches, have have different different values, and that needs to be reflected in the architecture. And something as fundamental as the the place where you live, where you bring up your family, where you spend most of your time, how kind of conceptually wrong is it that the design of it is in many cases driven by profit for somebody who has nothing to do with that um, community. Now, I, I'm, you can, of course, you can. Do, there are examples of fantastic affordable housing, but the volume house builders have typically, th- there's very little experiment, there's very little innovation. And there's a lot of replication. I think it's really interesting when you're talking about that because I'm, I'm listening to you and thinking, uh, A, what, what would we be doing? Because this is absolutely right. I look at this. I look around places and I think, 
A, who created this? B, who signed this off and said, yes, this, this is what we want to put in our towns. This, this you know, crock of crap. We're going to line up. And it, I mean, you can tell it's been done by developers. And not all developers, as we know, are bad. You know, we, we, we'd love to think that this would be easy. They're all like that. And, and many aren't. It's very similar as well when you talk about the community to what happened to out-of-town retail parks, which to me, the minute those two words, just I think, kel horror. And I hear big retailers going, yes, we're going to out-of-town retail parks. It's cheaper for people. And you think, no, 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 it's not. It's cheaper for you to sell more stuff and build in some dive, you know, off some main road. And you really think that that's feeding people's souls rather than having a local community of shops that are integrated. And this is what you're talking about as well, isn't it? And I, I'm wondering how we can shift that dial to who creates and signs off these spaces and allows. It's not only the developers. Is it, it must be coming from local councils as well. I mean, it does there need to be a real shift. And especially in light of the fact that we are now spending more and more time through COVID at home. Is there, it's, what would you be changing? I mean, it, it's interesting you use the analogy also of the, the kind of out-of-town shopping centre and a comparison to the, the high street, let's say mm. the department store in the high street. Because retail, you know, you know more than, more than me, more than anyone, that retail is changing and has been changing for a long time. And vast buildings lie empty and they're like the the shipwrecks of the the Mm. high street but we've got a fantastic opportunity now which has been accelerated by the the pandemic which is to to begin a, a transformation but to to do that we have to do everything that maybe goes against the grain for a kind of volume house builder which is to be brave to take risks to experiment to innovate so that we can grow into who we're becoming. Um, and one of, one of the projects that we've started to look at, and it's very early days, but I'm really interested in looking at the typology of the department store in, in a high street, because typically it's deep plan, it has very limited daylight, often a spectacular atria, but all of this makes it very, um, if it, you know, empty, take the Debenhams model, um, House of Fraser, it, it makes it very problematic to repurpose that building without extensive demolition and demolition in itself is polluting and wasteful. But I'm interested in seeing if we can't repurpose a building like that exploit the very characteristics that make it so difficult to convert and and not just repurpose it but design a program of functions and activities that will bring us together and help us live better together help us live better with nature and put the community back at the heart of the the high street and and this idea that we could create an opportunity for people and places to grow. And we're a little bit taking that um, literally because we're exploring how we could use the typology of the department store 
to design it around um, a place for growing food in a, in a city. And, and why? Because, you know, nurturing is a natural way. Growing things is nurturing and nurturing is a natural way of sharing. And it brings a sense of purpose and common endeavour and, and joy as you, you see something grow. But it, it goes beyond that because there, there are really interesting new technologies in hydroponic farming, um, different kinds of farming, which are very technical that don't depend on the earth, don't even depend on natural daylight, but have embedded in them the things, the, the kind of growth areas, whether it's coding, whether it's robotics. So could we, could we design a place which is both a socializer and an educator where people well, we can experiment with these technologies where we could use the atria of a department store for hydroponic farming, which is, you know, growing vertically with, with very little uh, water needed. Could we use basements to cultivate the mushrooms? Could we then have a market? Could we have... Um, oh, I love it. I love it. I love everything you're outside. talking about. This is this is like I was talking actually. Funnily enough, I know we've both worked the other side of the world, and I was actually talking about this too. And it's the, the difficulty is this, and I'd love to talk. We can talk more about this. We can repurpose. I love the way you talk. We need to grow into how we've been growing. And there was that wonderful the fifteen minute city that you, you'll know all about this. That, that um, um, I know. I know that once again, it's, it's becoming, especially in Milan, they're looking at how they can revive this. And I love the way that. I'm just going to explain to people that the 15-minute city is based on an idea of how city dwellers or even town, whatever, can use time and reorganise to to improve both their living conditions and the environment. So basically, can you reach everything you need in life by foot or on a bike? So that what you're doing is you're living in a wonderful... And I always think of it as like a warm wrap around you, sort of an ecosystem of community, work, home, shops, entertainment, education, healthcare, which is basically what you're saying. Imagine if we repurpose those physical spaces. How amazing. We could create beautiful ways and, and, and to live with the new rhythms of our life, the rhythms that have changed in our lives. The, and and uh, the difficulty when you're dealing with this, and I, I don't know, is that people's concepts of what a department store or what a shop should be are ones that have been for the last 30 years. It's there to sell stuff, basically. And what you're saying and what we know is that's shifted, that's gone. We need to repurpose, we need to re-envision, we need to transform, which which takes great creativity, Amanda. And I'm sitting talking to you, one of the greatest architects, how do you think we can put that into business people and say to them, look, you're the ones with the money, <laughs> you're sitting with this. Um, it, that, that's the education because really what we're getting down to here is, and I think back to those times when I, even when I was doing my high street report and all the out of town malls and supermarkets because it was cheaper for people to drive to there and we know now that that's killing our world, the CO2 emissions. How do we re-educate? I mean, is there anything, I know that's a big question, but how, is it just by showing an example? I'll do the department store with you. Should we take Debenhams? Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's do Debenhams. 
But but I think that um, how do you, you you do it you do it by example. Yeah. So we'll start doing this project. I mean, I would love it. I would love it if you could connect me with the person who owns a, a um, one of these uh, high street shipwrecks. We need to be given a building for five years and then allow us to experiment and allow us to create places and activities that will bring people together. Because in, you know, in our increasingly digital world, we've become, and since COVID, obviously, more disconnected than ever before. And the sort of remoteness and distance is destroying the very foundation of the culture of our lives. And we need places that are going to bring us together, but with a sense of purpose, not just places to shop and spend money, but places where people can learn new skills, where they can get a sense of um, satisfaction from what they're doing. You know, this increasing automation, people are going to need to learn new skills. And how wonderful if the department store became part of this this model in the 19th century, Emile Zola wrote so beautifully about the the department store as a sort of metaphor for modern city life, and indeed it was then. But we've we've kind of we've lost that. And can we reimagine? And you know, he he sort of wrote about it as a, as a whole way of being. And can we imagine a whole new way of being? And the thing that has, you know, that I have, and I'm sure most people have missed most uh, during this last year, is the sense of culture, of being with a group of people. Mm. You know, in our office, that is what we have not been able to really replicate remotely you need to be together I know I want to talk to you about that because I, I'm a great believer that and I, and I know you have children much the same age as my my children as well and I, I've, I've watched my daughter since starting work she just finished her master's literally every morning getting up having a coffee bowl of music going down online that's been her day and this is a 24 year old girl and it breaks my heart for a year no social interaction and that social interaction that, that we talk about it's, 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 well, you'll know this. It's, it's like when Jane Jacobs wrote The Death of the American City. She talked about all those trivial things that we miss, that we, you can't, it's the and, it's the and in between that, that the Sufis talk about. It's the and in between the sentences. You might know that A and B makes that, but what about the and? But you, you, and that, you, you, you spoke about it so beautifully this morning. It's that vibration. Yeah, the rhythm. It's a rhythm, I see. Yes, it's a rhythm. And it's me when I sometimes in the office and I'm like actually wandering in and passing someone's desk and then just stopping off and actually talking about something I watched on TV last night. Or them hearing me as an ageing leader, or not a leader, just enlarging it in the office and talking to someone and maybe picking up. That's how Mary does it. Or I, And they will then learn something from that. But I equally will learn something from that. All those things that we've lost, lost, lost. And when I hear... You know, people like Google saying we're not going to open our offices for another year. You just think, are you putting people first? Are you putting people at the heart of it? And so when you talk about this, what you're talking about is how do we create 
better models, whatever it is, reconciling nature and technology in ways to build better lives for us now. And we have this opportunity, don't we? So tell me what you think we should be doing or what you think is going to come out of this pandemic on how we will be living between office and home and what effect do you think that may have and what will change? I mean, I, th- I think it's really hard to, to predict. But I, and I, I can really only, you know, I, it's much easier for me to talk from my own kind of perspective and, and the conversations that I've been having with the office. Because one of the things that's really kind of sustained us and, and created a kind of modicum of culture is to have conversations about about the future and what the future could be. And coming out of those conversations and the sort of, you know, what what is the post-COVID world? I, I kind of posed a, a question and said, could, could we, you know, could we imagine because we, we've been working in a from a warehouse for the last 25 years fantastic huge big space scruffy part of london but amazing space all in one room but how about we reimagine the office as a family home and we buy a house um in in a nice part of town and and we just had a a, a discussion around this and then we had the opportunity to completely serendipitously buy a building off market. And in April, we will have completed our transition from warehouse to townhouse. Around the corner from me, I'm going to be coming around for a cup of sugar, Amanda Levy. I'm going to be knocking on that door saying, hey, I need some sugar. Are you in? <laughs> I'll be knocking on your door too. <laughs> And I, you know, so it's going to be a really different way of working. We want to achieve a more positive work-life balance. I think there will be a kind of model, and I don't want to be specific because I think we have, we've got to not be too tough on ourselves and try and design that model. I think we've got to test, try out lots of different things. Mm. But I imagine that we'll primarily be in the office but you know one or two days maybe at home the difficulty with that is we've all got pretty used to zoom we've all adapted remarkably quickly and remarkably well to that and zoom works very well when everyone is in a different place where it breaks down is where you have some people in a room around the table and other people um, remotely, and that's a it becomes a much more difficult um, model to to manage and, and make effective. So I think we have to just we have to grow into this new building and see how it makes us think differently about ourselves, how it affects the way we work. So instead of having one vast space, we'll have. A number of rooms, each will have a slightly different character. We don't want it to look too much like an office. We want it to look like a home. Everybody will be on laptops. There'll be very few um, on-desk um, monitors and computers. So it's... And all the doors will be open. But I think it will change the way we work in in, in quite a 
profound way, whether we have you know, a project room or whether it's a much freer arrangement of, you know, you sit where you feel like sitting in that moment. I think we have to just, we have to test it out. Yeah, it's an organic process. And I, I, when you're talking about that, and I'm visualising this, because this is really going to be important. We're, what we're really talking about here is how we create well-being. Well-being is post-COVID. In a way, and, I, and what we have learned from this is that we need to connect with our souls and our feelings and our energy more than ever in order to feel good. And we've looked at our homes and we're going... And we've seen the growth in, in, in home design and people buying to try and improve their environment and understanding the power of environment and the profound effect it has on the way we feel, which I don't think many people or many of us thought about before. And I, when you're talking about your design for your future space for you and your, your team... I think of those soulless, I, I can't bear them. I remember being in New York when, when, I, when I first came across them, those huge marble entrances to offices where you're about sort of 30 feet before you meet someone behind a desk who says that's the fifth floor. Space that's cold and clinical. Where on earth did we ever get that idea that that would feed the soul when it came to working? And I think I was, I was in New York with my son about before... COVID hit and I could fit because that was the frequency of New York it's that speed and glass and glamour and money and and you knew that those buildings you know perpetuated that that was the speed of it and, and, and as I was there going into Macy's seeing these floors and floors of stuff it was about to close shops that stores that had closed down you knew I knew I felt We'd come to the end of that era and it was all linked to the more and consumerism. And I think what COVID has given us is this need for nurturing, nurturing and greater connection and community that you talk about. What, what way do you think, so you've talked about what your office may feel like, what way do you think that may change our local high streets and how we live if we're going to be spending more time at home? So you've talked about what your office would feel like. What do you think would, would need to maybe go onto a high street or, or, or that may change there that will connect with this new rhythm of life that we're going to hopefully find more soulful? Well, I think um, just just to come back on something that you you talked about the kind of faceless monolithic um high rise the kind of implying the 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 end of that era which i i i agree with you and i've always found it slightly bizarre that the kind of the iconography of um the the success and the prowess of a city is expressed in their downtown district with faceless monolithic buildings you have no idea who is in those buildings or what yeah. they are doing or how many businesses are in the building. And I think if you want to attract people back to the office and you, you want to attract people back to the office because of creating culture, you've got to have, you've got to really think what kind of spaces people want and do they want to work in those spaces? Do they want, is it not better? to break things down a bit, to, to design buildings and repurpose buildings wherever we can, because I think it's our responsibility to repurpose and not build new if we can um, avoid it. 
because of our, our to reduce our carbon footprint can we can we design buildings and you know they can be large but where you have a sense of how many businesses are there or what they might be doing that there's some expression um where there's a greater relationship between the outside and the inside where you know everybody has access whether it's in their homes or in their offices everyone has access to some outdoor space whether it's private outdoor space or public outdoor space it's so i think covid has shown in you know in sharp relief how important nature is and how important it is to to find a way of living better with nature and bring nature back into our cities so for the high street why you know can't we plant an orchard in the high street um can't we fling open the doors and and take um nature inside i think we need to make some very bold moves that will encourage people to you know that people love the unexpected it's kind of it's interesting it's attracting and to to juxtapose the kind of gritty reality of uh city life with um with a piece of nature you you know that we talk about a kind of rhythm of vibration but then you really get a vibration because you get the the one ricocheting off the other i was just trying to find out what was the um the shopping mall that they're trying to do that in the city it was one designed by john paulson not that because he's an extraordinary architect we know but they want to knock it down because the river's running behind it and just open up and actually go back to this green space with the river running through it. i'll have a look I, I remember reading about it and thinking wow this feels like a city that understands some of these some of these spaces have got to go. The biggest thing is to take something away because yes. what you get back is much much greater. You know, and and sometimes the biggest statement is not to build and to make a park. Also in the this morning's podcast that I was listening to with you, we don't have to be obsessed with growing bigger and creating more volume and more square feet. we can be we can feel good about making less in fact we have to we have to desire we have to want to desire less yes. in everything we do i think well i think you know we've been fed that the more we have it makes us happier and i think we've realized that's just not the case you're working on a, a huge new project i want to talk on the canadian clean energy firm general fusion i love the sound of this what is it about this T- tell me about this brief uh, and what is it is inspired you and what sort of things you're doing in here that's going to be how we should be thinking about the future here let, let me just tell you the story of how this project came about because it was really interesting so i was at a a, a conference in um Malaysia a couple of years ago and it was talking about um soul and algorithms you know positing the kind of the, the two extremes and people from different disciplines different um parts of the world came together to talk and I was talking about soul in architecture 
and alongside a, a physicist from Thailand who was sending rockets to the moon. And most extraordinary people. <laughs> and there was a, a talk given by um, the CEO of General Fusion. And I, I didn't really understand what Fusion was until I'd, I'd heard. And, and Fusion is it's how the sun and the stars create energy. Um, and and it, it's been, you know, it's a, a, a technology, an idea that people have been striving for for decades because whoever cracks it um, will, and it won't just be one company, many, many people are looking at it, but, you know, it has the potential to, to solve the energy problems of the world forever and provide clean, um, affordable energy. And anyway, this talk was completely inspiring and I asked him um, to come and give, if he was ever in London, could he come and give this talk to my office? Because I knew that everyone would be incredibly excited and uh, all I could promise was a lot of, you know, technically very literate um, mm -hmm. architects who want to change the world. Anyway, he, he did. A few months later, he came to London and gave the talk. And at the end of the talk, he showed a slide of the prototype uh, facility that they were designing. And it was, it was a shed. It was terrible. It, it was, <laughs> it was nothing. So a great talk. And then he puts his final slide up. You know, I, I've, I've got to push back here. This isn't good enough. You know, this, this, this technology has the potential to change the world and you've got to message that. And, you know, we're, we're not paying for you to give a talk here and we can't pay, but let me as a sort of thank you offer to do, if you give us the, the brief, we'll do, put a small team onto it, we'll do a couple of weeks' work and show you what this facility could be. And that's how we got the job. We did it and then, you know, and then nothing happened for a year or so and, and now we're doing it. So it, it was just a wonderful kind of chance meeting in person um, that's led to a really fantastic um, commission. Which is very future that, I mean, I, I can't even start to imagine how that energy is going to happen. But I, was, I suppose the, the big question that I want to ask you now and the changes that you've seen, um, and you've done some incredible architecture, but what, what are your hopes? Or what do you think will be for the next five to ten years? What are your hopes? Do you believe that we'll be living in a kinder way through our buildings and how we're interacting socially? Do you think it's going to be better? Or do you think... No, I do. I, I, I really do. But it will only be better if every single one of us plays our part in making it better. And we don't sit back and wait for government to tell us how to do it or business to tell us how to do it. We each have to play our part, you know, in our very, very interconnected world. But there are so many people who want things to be different, who want to make a contribution, who want to feel a real sense of purpose. And 
you know, it, it's for all of us in our own very different ways to, to play a very small part in that. And, and the part that we can play as architects is to be radical in our thinking, sensitive at the same time, and there's no contradiction in that at all, and to, to demonstrate how we can change often existing buildings, change them not just into something else, but to change the sort of the governance of the buildings. The, mm. and, and I think, you know, for me, architecture isn't just about designing a container. It's playing a part in designing the system that happens, that, that takes place in that container. And by proposing ideas that go beyond the delineation of the site that you've been given to encourage clients to be more socially ambitious, to be more environmentally ambitious and to make a difference in, in that respect. And I think you know, housing should be designed around shared values, not around the value of something. You know, how can we make sure that everything that we do, whether it's offices, whether it's housing, whether it's retail, is designed for that community, for that place, for that locale, that it comes That's, out of something specific? It's, it's living institutions. I th and I feel that that's where we need to get to. We were in siloed businesses that turn up but aren't actually embedded in the living, the livingness, the community of that space. And I think that's what you're asking for, which is wonderful. I could talk to you all day, Amanda Levy. That was fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your time. I have to tell everyone, I'm looking at her, looking gorgeously glamorous and her bookshelves, which I'm so jealous of. It's like a library. It looks... It is a library. <laughs> it is a library and it's wonderful. And I'm going to see you R-I-L. You know what that means? In real life, maybe. <laughs> Next week, we've got a two-part show. In the first, I'm talking to Michael Green. He's the chief exec of the Social Progress Imperative. And he really is going to tell us about practical ways in which we can start to measure success by more than money and the wider effect that this has and how it can still make profit. But I'm also going to be joined by my CEO, Corrine, and my Chief Strategy Officer, Lily. And we're going to talk over this series and we're going to look at some of the wonderful stories that you've told us about how you've been implementing the kindness economy into your business. So don't forget, we'll be talking about you as well as to other people next week. That's with me, Mary Portis, on The Kindness Economy. <laughs> <laughs>